A DNA sample is placed in a Petri dish filled with a with gel medium, the first step in creating a genetic footprint used to identify a criminal. Now, with high-tech genetic analysis and popular ancestry websites, detectives are unraveling once unsolvable crimes. And the one that comes to mind is the infamous Golden State Killer. For four decades, he eluded capture, leaving a trail of murders, rape, and fear in his wake until a popular genealogy website led cops to a suspect and to his doorstep. A masked intruder with a knife and a gun, he came in in the dead of night as if conjured by his victims' most primal fears. He stalked his prey and invaded their safe suburban homes. He shot and bludgeoned male and female victims alike. He raped women and girls and attacked one young mother in a moment of maternal bliss as her three-year-old snuggled at her side. The Golden State Killer's bloody 12-year rampage of murder, rape, and robbery terrorized communities across California before the spree inexplicably ended in 1986 and the killer vanished without seemingly, seemingly a trace. In his wake, he left 13 dead, more than 50 women sexually brutalized, and victims and their families traumatized, some for life. I don't really feel 100% safe anywhere, a California woman told a magazine in 2017, requesting anonymity 39 years after she was attacked. The growl threats of her rapist were still vivid in her memory. I don't want to go alone. I don't want to go to malls. I'm always anxious. I try to listen to men's voices everywhere I go. Is he out there? Who is he? Is he someone I know? Her fears were not misplaced. For when the Golden State Killer was finally unmasked the following year, it turned out her alleged rapist had lurked for decades, less than two hours down the freeway. On April 25, 2018, Sacramento County District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert announced the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, then 72. Recently retired after 27 years as a SafeMart grocery truck mechanic, the father of three grown children was taken into custody at the home he shared with one of his daughters and a grandchild in Citrus Heights, California. The town is 10 miles from Rancho Cordova, where D'Angelo reportedly grew up and would later pursue a criminal career that made him, said Sacramento County Sheriff John Scott Jones, one of the most prolific sexual offenders and serial killers in modern history. Their attempts at trying to, to capture this, this monster went on for 40 years. Now, the arrest came after the case had long since gone cold, despite vows by investigators never to give up the hunt. Our task force had a list of 8,000 suspects, retired Orange County Sheriff Department investigator Larry Poole said, but no one was ever identified. Locating him, Schubert told magazine, was like looking for a needle in a haystack, and we found that damn needle. Thanks to a few strands of genetic evidence 
and a groundbreaking and still controversial genealogical sleuthing technique, investigators succeeded in identifying the subject at last by anonymously uploading DNA from four, decade old, from four decades old crime scenes to the public genealogy website GEDmatch. A match with a distant relative or relatives who shared the same DNA led them to D'Angelo. Now that's according to Paul Holes, the retired cold case forensic detective who was very, very instrumental in identifying the alleged perpetrator. If he did not leave his DNA all over the place in the 70s and 80s, and if my predecessors hadn't preserved it, Holes tells the magazine, it's very possible the case would never have been solved. The Golden State Killer's success in eluding capture for decades, his meticulous planning and reconnaissance, for he staked out and then burglarized targeted homes prior to the attack, as well as his use of flashlights to blind and homemade restraints to bind and control his victims, rendering them helpless, had led some investigators to surmise that the offender they hunted was highly sophisticated and had military or even police training. D'Angelo, they learned, had both a Navy veteran who served in Vietnam and reportedly graduated from California State University in Sacramento with a criminal justice degree. He worked as a cop in Central California and in the Sacramento area at the same time that the Golden State Killer was committing crimes of ever escalating violence throughout both places. He was basically living two lives, Paul Holes said. On one hand, he is out there crime fighting and protecting the public, and as soon as he takes off his badge, he's burglarizing houses and raping women, and eventually he's killing. Throughout three distinct crime sprees committed in three separate California locales, the Golden State Killer was a feared phantom known by three different names. First, he was known as the Visalia Ransacker in Central California, San Joaquin Valley. Then, he was known at, then as the East Area Rapist in Northern California. And then finally, as the original Night Stalker in the downstate counties of Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Orange. The more famous tag, the Golden State Killer, was coined decades after the mayhem. If not, the fear had ended by the late true crime writer Michelle McNamara, whose bestseller about the case, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, was published in 2018 with the help of her husband, actor Patton Oswalt. She took its title from the assailant's chilling threat to a victim, You'll Be Silent Forever, and I'll Be Gone in the Dark. During the time that the Vasalia Ransacker, a violent prowler who committed more than 100 break-ins, was terrorizing the quiet San Joaquin Valley farm community between 1974 and 1975, D'Angelo was a cop in nearby Exeter. The Ransacker seemed more intent on destroying victims' sense of security than in mere theft. He enjoyed inflicting terror, Holes says, while thoroughly Trashing victims' homes, the robber committed petty but cruel larcenies, stealing wedding rings and family photos, or swapping a single earring to ruin a prized pair. This is said by Sacramento detective and longtime case investigator Richard Shelby. He was a mean bastard. 
In August of 2018, four months after his arrest, D'Angelo was charged with the ransacker's most notorious crime, the 1975 murder of Popular College of the Sequoia's journalism professor Claude Snelling, a Visalia man who was shot and killed when he tried to stop a masked intruder from abducting, abducting his 16-year-old daughter from their home. The havoc attributed to the ransacker had ended by the time D'Angelo joined the police department in Auburn, a town 20 miles northeast of Sacramento in 1976. But his tenure there co coincided with the nightmare specter known as the East Area Rapist, a sadistic predator who committed more than 50 sexual assaults between 1976 and 1979. The attack spread fear and attracted intense press coverage. Reports detailed the rapist's distinctive twisted M.O. When attacking couples, for instance, he created a makeshift alarm by placing cups and saucers or dinner plates on the back of bound and gagged male victims, then threatened to kill everyone in the house if he heard them clatter while he sexually assaulted the women in the next room. When I heard him coming with the plates, I knew that if he goes into my mom's room with him, he's going to rape me. Margaret Winslow, just 12 at the time, but with precise awareness of the fact the fates of 26 victims before her, she told the magazine decades later. He went into my mom's room. I said to myself, prepare yourself, and then I was number 27. In February 1978, newlyweds Katie, then 20, and Brian Majori, 21, were walking their dog, Thumper, in Rancho Cordova, where D'Angelo reportedly had attended junior high. When, investigators believe, the couple inadvertently encountered a man they realized was the East Area Rapist about to strike again. The two were chased down, cornered, and shot dead, execution style. They were just starting their lives together, Katie's brother, Ken Smith, told the magazine in 2017. The last of the East Area Rapist's suspected attacks occurred in 1979 in Contra Costa County, the same year that D'Angelo was fired from the Auburn Police Department after he was allegedly caught at a Citrus Heights pick-and-save shoplifting a hammer and a can of dog repellent. Those items would gain chilling significance only with his arrest four decades later. It was not until 2001 that Holes and a forensic counterpart in Orange County were actually able to establish conclusively through crime scene DNA that the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker, a, a particularly violent and brutal murderer who allegedly killed 10 men and women in Southern California between 79 and 1986, were one and the same. According to press reports, D'Angelo was living at the same address in Citrus Heights where he was arrested when the Golden State Killer's final victim, Janelle Cruz, then 18, was raped and clubbed to death at her family's home, 450 miles south in Irvine, on a Sunday in May 1986. Little has been made public about his activities and how he earned a living before he started working at the Save Mart around 1991. He's still very much a mystery man, Hole says, of D'Angelo, who has remained jailed without bond in Sacramento since his arrest. He awaits trial on charges of 13 counts of murder, including many with special circumstances, and 13 counts of kidnapping with intent to commit robbery. Prosecutors have said they intend to seek the death penalty. The judge has entered a not guilty plea on behalf of D'Angelo, who is represented by public defenders 
and set preliminary hearings for the spring. Many in quiet Citrus Heights were stunned by the news of his arrest. Nobody thinks that their next-door neighbor is a serial killer, Kevin Tapia, who lived a property line away from D'Angelo for more than 20 years, told the magazine. Yet no one seemed more shocked than D'Angelo himself when he made his first appearance in court handcuffed in a wheelchair, slack-jawed and apparently so weak he could barely speak. Of course, Holes believed that was just bullshit. Holes states that he was bombing down city streets and freeways on his motorcycle at over 100 miles an hour just days before. Um, noting that the police had D'Angelo under surveillance prior to his arrest, he was very, very physical, physically capable. So for him to show up in a wheelchair is him being the tactician. He's trying to garner sympathy and figure out how. How can I minimize what's going to happen to me? But for his victim, Jane Carson Sandler, the woman whose toddler was sleeping at her side when she was attacked, the arrest brought undiluted relief, as she told the magazine. It's a dream come true. A long, long nightmare has finally, finally ended. We'll be right back. Now let's just look at the timeline here just a little bit. Um, like I said, in the beginning, he wasn't known as the Golden State Killer. He was different. There was different parts of California he was doing different things in. He was gradually and slowly getting more violent and violent and violent and violent until finally he was just on a killing spree. But in 1974 through 1975, there was more than 100 break-ins in the San Joaquin Valley, and they are attributed to a prowler known as the Visalia Ransacker. Now, that crime spree ends after the 1975 murder of college professor Claude Snelling. Now, in 1976, a 23-year-old woman is raped by a man wearing only a mask and a t-shirt at her home in the Sacramento suburb of Rancho, Rancho Cordova, California. And that's where Joseph D'Angelo lived as a teen. It is the first in a series of some 50 violent sexual attacks over a period of three years linked to a predator dubbed the East Area Rapist. Now, through those times, the manhunt continues. Now, over those three years, police find clues near the home of rape victims. They find a hand-drawn map of a neighborhood and a rant against a sixth-grade teacher. The predator actually shoots a couple walking their dog. Now, in December of 79, the shooting deaths of physicians Deborah Manning and her boyfriend Robert Offerman in the Santa Barbara County marked the beginning of what is considered at the time a separate wave of attacks in Southern California by the so-called original Night Stalker. So, by 1979, we have got the Visalia Ransacker, we have got the East Area Rapist, and we have got the original Night Stalker. In March of 1980, Lyman and Charles Smith are fatally bludgeoned in their Ventura, California home. DNA is carefully preserved in a crime lab freezer. Now, through 1980 and 1986, six more killings are attributed to the original Night Stalker before he rapes and bludgeons his final victim, an 18-year-old woman, home alone in Irvine on May the 4th, 1986. Now, from 1986 to 2001, really there's not much 
other than just your basic investigation going on. Not much at all is, is broken or made or is new in the case. But in 2001, cops announced that DNA from the rapist and the stalker match. Soon after, the predator taunts a victim he had raped 24 years earlier, leaving a recorded message on her phone. Remember when we played? So that's in 2001 when they finally, Paul Holes, were finally put everything together and was able to link all of these crimes to one individual. Now, from 2011 to 2018, Investigators from Northern and Southern California form a task force to pursue a lone predator known as the Golden State Killer. The FBI offers a $50,000 reward. The case files fill a storeroom. Now, on April 15, 2018, which I couldn't believe it when they, when they announced it, that they had, a, a, they had arrested the Golden State Killer. Uh, of course, they say this was huge, Sheriff Scott Jones says, of the arrest of the alleged Golden State Killer. It's like catching Jack the Ripper. Now, by uploading, of course, when he was committing his crimes, obviously, he was careful not to leave fingerprints and things like that. But you had to know he was keeping his, his finger on the pulse of science and on, and on this case because it seems like in 86, when other things started to come out, DNA and things like that, that, that you know, some people say that he, how, how, a man like this can't stop, can't stop. But I'm sure the fear of being incarcerated or the death penalty or the fear of just being caught could have paralyzed him. Of course, he ended up having kids and family and things like that. Now, one of the victims reported that she heard a rapist say, "I hate you, Bonnie," which that led to speculation that a long time ago split with like a fiance named Bonnie may have motivated D'Angelo's alleged sadistic attacks. And of course, it is found the announcement of Bonnie Jean Coldwell and Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. of an engagement announcement. So that's just another thing leaking D'Angelo to the crime. Now, of course, California's reign of terror, the murder victims, everybody, this man totally devastated people's lives, even just by breaking in and ransacking someone's home, taking that, and he wasn't there to get valuables. He was there to, to scope out, and he was there to terrorize and take away people's security. So, you know, the first murders were spur of the moment. You know, a father gunned down outside his home in 75. Three years later, a young couple out for a walk and then shot dead when they may have happened upon a crime in progress. And in the time, the Golden State Killer developed a lust for murder, allegedly taking the lives of 13 people in all. In 1986, after a five-year lull, a final victim, 18-year-old Janelle Cruz, was brutally bludgeoned to death. I hope he talks, her sister Michelle told the magazine, after she learned a suspect had been charged with the murders. I would like to figure out why. How did he pick Janelle? Now, Claude Snelling, 45, this, this man was a College of Sequoias professor. He was shot in September 75 when a masked intruder tried to abduct his 16-year-old daughter. Kate Majori, 20, Brian Majori, 21, shot by the killer while out for a nighttime walk in Rancho Cordova in 1978. Then you've got Deborah Manning, 35, a physician. She was raped and shot to death after her boyfriend, Santa Barbara, in her boyfriend, Santa Barbara country condo in 1979. Then you have Robert Offerman, 44. Deborah Manning's boyfriend broke free of his bindings and was shot dead as he charged the attacker. You've got Charlene Smith, 33, Lyman Smith, 43. A DNA from the rape and double murder in Ventura in 1980 led 
to D'Angelo. Patrice Harrington, 27. Keith Harrington, 24. The newlyweds were bludgeoned in their Laguna and Jill home in 1980. Manula Withun, 28. She was home alone at the Irvine home she shared with her husband when she was raped and bludgeoned in 1981. Sherry Domingo, 35. Gregory Sanchez, 27. The single mom and her boyfriend were slain at her Santa Barbara country home in 1981. And then you have Janelle Cruz, 18, 1986. She had a job in a pizza parlor when she was raped and killed at her family's home in Irvine in 1986. Now, Paul Holes, he is my superhero. Paul Holes needs a cape, in my opinion. He had spent much of his 25-year career as a forensics investigator and a DNA analyst, analysis hunting the vicious murder and rapist he called the worst serial predator we ever had. But by 2016, it seemed that the window of opportunity to catch his quarry was closing. He said, we, are having a, an, we have an aging offender, he told the magazine, and the more time that passes, the greater likelihood that he will just die before he's brought to justice. Of course, now Paul Holes is the host of Oxygen Series, The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. He also hosts the podcast, The Murder Squad with Billy Jensen. And he is the former Contra Costa County investigator. Says that the breakthrough came when he learned later that, uh, later that year that an unlikely sleuth, Barbara Ray Venter, a 70-year-old California genetic ge genealogist who did volunteer work for the website DNAadoption.com which helps people find who were adopted, find their birth parents, had helped a kidnapped child find her family by uploading her DNA to a genealogy database like the free GEDmatch website. Now, Holes contracted, uh, or contacted, sorry, uh, Ray Venter and asked, could this method be used to ID an unknown offender? Her response was, I don't see why it wouldn't. So, Holes and his forensic team used a searchable profile from DNA collected at the scene of a double murder and rape in Ventura, California in 1980. That, thanks to the work of a meticulous crime lab, had been preserved in a freezer. The high-quality genetic profile was uploaded to GEDmatch, and within hours yielded matches with other DNA profiles in the database of distant cousins of the still nameless rapist and the killer. Now, here's where the work starts, because this takes months and months of an analyzing the family tree, uh, of each positive hit, and just using good old-fashioned detective work to to narrow people, or to keep people and keep out narrow narrow it down. Holes and his team they narrowed the pool of possible suspects by gender, age, region, and profession and profession until they arrived at a name investigate investigators had never previously heard of, Joseph D'Angelo of Citrus Heights, California. Now they confirmed their hunch by directly matching the killer's DNA with a tissue discarded by D'Angelo in a trash can. Now, since then, uh, Ray Venter's method has helped close other cold cases, but privacy concerns have caused genealogy websites to tighten controls and specifically ask users to okay or disallow law enforcement searches. For his part, Holes hopes that the best practices and policies will be agreed upon that will protect privacy and allow police to continue to use a tool that helps to take predators like the Golden State Killer guys who killed women and kids in brutal manners for decades off the streets. It's still relatively new, so it's hard to say at what point 
I haven't heard of any cases, but I'm sure there's cases that's been brought up. But how do you, how do you argue that? I mean, it wasn't someone's DNA. Is is it like a fingerprint? I mean, when when you get arrested, and even before you're convicted, you get brought into a police department. They are going to take your fingerprints. They are going to take your fingerprints to identify who you are. Is DNA the same thing? I mean, do the, if the police have the rights to, to take your fingerprints when they arrest you, do they have the same rights to take your DNA? And that's an argument that goes above my head. I mean, you know, some could say that that's an infringement on your, your civil rights or liberties, whatever they may be, that you didn't upload your DNA to the GED match, so why should yours not be protected? You know, so they get your name through detective work, so they get 500 of your distant cousins that may have done it, and through good good old-fashioned detective work of of uh, going out and seeing who would fit the profile or who would male, female, whatever it may be. And maybe they weren't in the area at the time. Maybe they're too old. Maybe they're too young. They come across you, and then they grab a tissue out of the trash can or the garbage can, um, and then eventually, which would lead to a, a search warrant for your DNA. I'm not here to argue the rights and wrongs of it. I think it's pretty slick, if you ask me. So... I mean, who knows? They'll, they'll, I'll tell you right now, you go to jail, whether it be for writing a bad check, whether it be for jaywalking, they're going to take your fingerprints. And there's some some counties and some areas that already do DNA before conviction. Now, most states, you become convicted of any kind of felony, they're going to take your DNA and put it into a database, which makes sense to me. But then some people say, well, you know, Hell, why not just take your DNA when you're born, put it into a database, stop all the crime? Which the technology, I think, has slowed down quite a bit of, I mean, there's still, I mean, I don't want to say, obviously there's still murder and mayhem going on today that was going on then, but it just seems like there was a particular time in our history that seemed like serial killers were more active than, uh, than they are now. But this Golden State Killer is always, it, it just, this case blows my mind. And the fact that they solved it after so long and the way that Paul Holes went about doing it, to me, makes Paul Holes the man. And we know everybody loves Paul Holes. I sure as hell do. But anyway, I think that it's just amazing that the way that they had, had finally gave, a, a put a face to uh, a person, um, a person to three got three names. This this man terrorized California for years and done despicable, horrible things, and went quiet in '86, except for one phone call in 2001. So, you know what made him stop? Was it the fear of being caught? You know, most of them can't control that urge. Did he stop? Are there other crimes out there? Did he? finally clean up and stop leaving DNA. I mean, you, there's just, you never really know. But, I think Joseph D'Angelo is a mean son of a bitch. And uh, I think that it would be, I would just, would love to see somebody get in there and talk to him, like a John Douglas, a Paul Holes, or somebody. Just, to, I mean, you know, buddy, you're going to die in prison. They got your DNA. You know, he's off the street. Get into his head. I want to get into his head. I want to know 
what he was thinking because you know he remembers every detail of what he done. It would be amazing to be able to get into his head and to for uh, investigators like a John Douglas, like a Paul Holes, somebody with some you know with some some background behind them that, that knows what to ask and how to ask and and to get to the bottom of what causes a Joseph D'Angelo uh, through most of his life well I don't say most but you know from 86 on was he a law-abiding citizen did he just raise his family what makes someone age just stop or did he stop but you see that with the like the Israel Keys so the Israel Keys uh, it got uh, well I won't say got sloppy but Israel Keys for years and years was would plan things ahead years in advance would leave barrels buried in different states and would go there and would never commit any crimes around his area and would always be hundreds and hundreds of miles away but in the very end decides to to murder someone in his own backyard and then not only that to go across Arizona and Texas using the victim's debit card I mean he either couldn't control the urges got sloppy or wanted to get caught but they were able to get in his head for a little bit and then of course they I guess he felt like they um, reneged on the deal and, and his name got out and uh, he, he committed suicide but what causes someone that you you have two different lives D'Angelo which you hear neighbors also give uh, interviews that he was just a weird strange man then you have people that he worked with saying that there's no way in hell that this is the guy you know what a nice guy just two different lives and that to me is crazy how to keep one not from not bleeding over into the other how to keep it totally separate and to keep the people that are even closest to you in the dark of what kind of monster you really are so until then I believe that uh, you know well certain websites only you, you have to take a profile you have to first get a DNA profile and then you have to upload it into places like GEDmatch you can't just call you know with with like ancestry whatever the other ones are you have to send saliva and things like that in but with GEDmatch you just upload the DNA profile so I mean I, I've seen of several several cases that have been solved that way you've got cases that are old and uh, there's the, the only way to solve them is with science because you're not gonna have eyewitness you're not gonna have any other evidence to to find out who had committed these heinous crimes it has to be solved by science which I think science and DNA are an amazing tool that has changed um, investigations and have cha it's changed the justice system forever for the good now there are some for the bad because I think that when you get juries and you hear the word DNA I think sometimes people just think oh DNA oh they've got to be guilty but you got to really sit back and think of in what context is this DNA here now with D'Angelo it's pretty obvious he collected semen so there's no reason his semen should be at that scene period but with other things uh, you know if you have a root on hair or if you have touch DNA or if you have other sweat things like that 
just got to be real careful with it. But I think that the Golden State Killer and him being captured to me is one of the most amazing things that I ever heard in my life. Because I, after getting, um, after reading Michelle McNamara's book, after kind of getting involved in the many, many television programs that came on with it, it was just amazing to me. Like, oh my God, this guy was basically three different uh, serial killers, really, because it's the. Because even in the early early days, if you went like with Claude Snelling, he was part of the Vasilia Ransacker, and uh, he he dropped shot him because he was trying to uh, interrupt what he was doing. And then the same thing with the seventy in nineteen seventy six, um, as the East Area Rapist, and then as the original Night Stalker. So this man was three within a. From 1974 to 1986, well, yes, I'm sorry, 1974, 1986, this man was three different, in its own, standing alone, the Vasilia Ransacker was a monster. Standing alone, the East Area Rapist was a monster. Standing alone, the original, original Night Stalker was a monster. But not only are these three Three monsters, these are one monster. The, all three of these names were one man. Thank you, Paul Holes. We love you. This is The Weekly Podcast. And she was near the ant that she referenced in the letter. Why had they not heard from her? Why had the aunt not heard from her or seen her? Instead of reaching out to her new life, her aunt, from this payphone, we're made to believe that she would rather take the time to call back home to talk to Michael Turney for 15 seconds to say, leave me alone? I'm sorry. That doesn't make any sense. Why would she not reach out to her new family in California, the aunt? She didn't take her cell phone, so she's going to pick up this payphone and call back to Michael to say, leave me alone? She's not going to call and pick up and call her aunt? Hey, come get me. I made it. What the fuck? So here's my words. I will end with this. Real, realistically, Michael Turney tells a story that in Alyssa Turney's note, she left when she she ran away to California. She had made up her mind that morning to run away, but according to Michael Turney, she wanted him to pick her up early so she didn't have to break up with her boyfriend. But she's leaving forever, and she doesn't reach out to anyone at school. Maybe she wanted Michael to pick her up early as part of her master escape plan, this genius. He must continue to play Alyssa as a naive ADHD, learning disability child, because the story he drummed up is strange. Okay, she is home. Michael Turney's gone. Alyssa is in a fucking hurry. She grabs some clothes, few items, destroys her room, steals Michael Turney's 300 bucks, doesn't even think, oh, I have $1,800 in the bank. Well, she leaves her cell phone because, you know, when you're running away to California, who needs a way to contact help? She's gone. No one sees her. No one sees her in the neighborhood. No, no one sees her in California. No one sees her anywhere. 
But according to Michael Turney, we're dealing with this naive girl that can't even put two sentences together without his help. But on the flip side, we've got someone that's orchestrated and, and, and masterminded and a, a great escape plan with 300 bucks and no phone. Make it right. Ask for forgiveness by leading investigators to her body. Tell them what happened. You think that those here on earth aren't suffering from this tragedy, this loss? For some, they have lost a sister. They've even lost a dad. For some, they have to deal with losing a sister, mom, and their dad. Hey, dad, you should be doing everything in your power to love and support your daughter. You should not cause her pain. You're not man enough to step up and admit you're wrong. You also would rather see your daughter carry this heavy burden, this weight, that she has really done an amazing job on. Now speaking of, about Sarah. Maybe it's all meant to be this way. For if we lose sight of all things happen for a reason, and every heartache brings some joy or something positive, then we have no hope. Carry this, Sarah. Because through this tragedy, you have absolutely changed and touched people's lives in such an amazing and very beautiful way. God bless. God bless you, Sarah. This is The Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Weekly Podcast. Uh, if you could, go on Apple. Uh, give us a review or a rating, preferably five stars, if, wherever you get your podcast. and You can do those things. We would appreciate it. Subscribe to it. Uh, we apologize for the delay in the in the uh, episode. We had some issues that had come up with COVID-19 and everything else that's breaking out in our country. So I apologize for that. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to the ones that have subscribed and do listen. Um, I just want to say thanks. I don't want to spend a great deal of time um, on talking about the reviews and the ratings. And I just hope that eventually they come. So... That being said, this week I want to talk about the Alyssa Turney story. Uh, kind of just want to give you some basics, and if you're not familiar with that story, um, it is one of the stories that kind of got me into listening to podcasts and true crime. So I hold it pretty dear to my heart. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Turney, and just to let her know what an amazing job she's doing, and uh, just wanted to tell her thanks. I think she's an amazing person and does an amazing job. Uh, you know, in the back of his mind, he knew that one day he would lose every bit of control that he had on this situation. For years now, no one could question him. No one was going to tell him how to raise his daughter. His control over her had begun to, to dwindle. And of course, Lord knows controlling a 17-year-old is tough. And uh, he knows that this one, that this one is very strong-willed and very strong-minded. He knows that she will not stay quiet for much longer. And what can he do? She will be free from his controlling hand, able to, his controlling hand, able to manipulate the situation for years. He started by telling people that this girl here, she has a learning disability, that she doesn't understand anything, and is so naive because if any of his strange behavior came to light in the past, he would always blame it on her. He's always recording her inside and outside of the home. 
He's recording every phone call that's made to and from the home. He's having her sign strange contracts and even calling Child Protective Services in advance to say, hey, if my daughter calls and says anything about abuse, it's just not true. So the groundwork of keeping this secret a secret has been many years in the making. He has worked so hard to keep her as close to him for as long as he can. Because he had monitored the situation, he could not risk giving her too much room because he knew this one would let the world know just exactly what had and has been going on between her and her stepdad. So after protecting himself all these years, has he finally came to a point where now the only way to keep her quiet is to silence her forever? Because he knows in less than a year she will be 18, and his abilities to control the narrative, well, it's over. So that brings us to the last day of school, junior year, and Mr. Michael Turney of Phoenix, Arizona goes to pick up his stepdaughter, Alyssa Turney, from school early today for some reason. Well, Alyssa tells her best friend bye, and then takes the time to poke her head into her boyfriend's class and tell him bye. This is the absolute last time anyone has seen Alyssa Turney anywhere on God's green earth. This is The Weekly Podcast. Alright, so what have we got? The problem I've got with the day of disappearance is this. Most of the time, an older child runs away from home due to a situation that they perceive as dire. You know, either they're was more to whatever was going on inside the home or the story is a bold-faced lie. So let's take the story at face value. Let's break it down. Michael Turney picks Alyssa Turney up from school early. No one knows about this, really, until it comes out on 2020, family or no one. She told her boyfriend she was leaving, told her friend that she, Alyssa Turney, was going to try and stop by later. So now, uh, Michael Turney takes her uh, out to lunch, they're talking about hypothetical situations, uh, and the, the issues aren't real. They're not real. It's hypothetical. She's, she's going to be mad about something that she maybe she can't stay out later. Next month, her curfew's not going to be long enough, so she's going to get upset enough to run away and never be seen again. Okay. Um, so it's... So you know there will be rules, as he says, and... Alyssa's supposed to say, no, I'm, I'm going to stay out late and maybe all night. So, okay, she's, she's upset by these rules and she wants to leave. She might start the planning process of leaving, maybe try and tell her boyfriend or some of her girlfriends. The rules of, it just rules out that the conversation would not cause Alyssa to, to within a few hours, make a decision to grab some of her things, leave all of her important things behind. So, I mean, so she, I just don't understand this. So, the rules that Mike has, Michael Turney's put in place has caused Alyssa Turney to throw all caution to the wind. So, just because she may or may not get to stay out late over the summer, she's decided that she has got to go. Now, not plan when she turns 18 
which is just a few months away, she has to set her plan into motion and leave. It would even be different if, if Michael had said she wanted to go to an end-of-the-year school party, and I said, hell no, so her leaving abruptly and maybe going over to a friend's, realizing after cooling down, she, she goes home. My point is that we're supposed to believe a 17-year-old girl that has patiently been putting up with Michael Turney's shit for years is going to, months before her 18th birthday, is going to leave her home and, and the only one that she has, good or bad, leave her phone, leave her money, $1,800, only to leave a letter that says, oh, Dad, I stole 300 So, that doesn't make any sense to me. How about maybe the writing was on the wall and Michael Turney knew it? He had hard enough time controlling Alyssa when she was a uh, minor child. He knew what would happen if she ever got away from his control and manipulation. He knew it. If anyone, if anyone had thought out and made a plan, it wasn't Alyssa, it was Mike, who had set the wheels in motion when he called family, stating that Alyssa Turney was talking of running away. Remember, anything outside of cold hard facts in this case mentioned in this podcast are just pure speculation, and that's what I'm doing right now, and is only a, a possible theory. So hopefully, one day the truth is told, and a young, beautiful, and very smart little lady can be properly laid to rest. She, derves, she deserves that and much, much more. A sister deserves answers. And, uh, you know, do you have any idea how tough and mentally draining it is to love someone and, and that someone is supposed to be a rock for you no matter what, cause, you know, what comes and goes? To not to be able to have that support from your father because you may fear that he has secrets? I imagine that would be tough. I do. So we know that it comes out that not only does he have a truck, but he has two of the same trucks. I find that odd. But you know, all of this because she may or may not be able to have more freedom over the summer. Here is the problem. You know, the poor girl has endured Michael Turney for years. And over the years, maybe she's broke down a few times and said something to someone. Most of the time, she said nothing. She just kept on chugging right along the best she could. And now, Alyssa can see the end is in sight. Just like a, a while back when she was going to run away to California and wrote that note. But she didn't. She was almost 18. And then guess what, Mike? She's going to tell you to go pound sand. His, your control would be gone. His control would be gone. His power gone. His influence gone. And Alyssa was, was working and saving. And that $1,800 meant everything to her. I guarantee it. That money and that phone was her lifeline. So when did Michael find the note? When did he put his plan into motion? 
Because Alyssa's becoming a liability to his freedom and he knows it. It's been his own rules and abuse that has caused Alyssa to be strong-willed and strong-minded, a strong-minded young woman, and he knew it. He knew it. We'll be right back. This case goes, it could go in many different directions. I really just want to give you the basics of what I know and what I've read and what, what the, that way you can maybe dig a little deeper in some aspects if you want to. Alyssa Marie Strom was born April the 3rd, 1984 to Father Stephen Strom and Mother Barbara Farner Strom. Now Barbara, she ends up, um, Barbara and Stephen do not end up staying together. Barbara ends up uh, meeting and marrying a man uh, by the name of Michael Turney. Uh, Barbara passes away in February of um, 1993. So Alyssa is now in custody of her stepfather. Now Barbara and Mike did have a daughter together. Her name was Sarah. Now throughout uh, Alyssa's life, there had been many accusations. So I don't know that any of these accusations have ever been verified, but there is an accusation because very shortly after Barbara died, Mike had, Michael been, uh, began dating a woman, Diane Boardman, and she had made a claim that Alyssa had told her that uh, she's having sex with her dad. Now Mike explains that, that you know maybe she'd seen um, something on TV or maybe she thinks of giving her a hug or a kiss and has got mixed up and confused. Um, it is also stated that Michael Turney had made uh, derogatory comments about, you know, Alyssa will be someone that men would love, would have great sex with, things like that. There's a home movie, young Sarah playing with a camera while Michael Turney um, is heard in the background. You can hear Alyssa calls for Sarah a few times before yelling, Dad's a pervert. Michael calls Alyssa a stupid moron throws a shoe at her, and tells Sarah to turn the camera off. Uh, around this same time, Mike had uh, made Alyssa's brother John sign a uh, contract stating that uh, the contract stating Alyssa was never sexually abused, which is strange. Um, when Alyssa was in middle school, uh, their cousin David came to live with them, and Mike admitted to David that he had uh, tied Alyssa to a chair because she was out of control. Alyssa told David that... Uh, her dad had handcuffed her to a bed. David came home from work one night, put in a VHS tape marked Dr. Doolittle that instead was a home movie from the tourney home showing two girls, one of which was Alyssa, unconscious, naked from the waist up, with their faces covered by newspaper. When David found this, he left and never spoke to his uncle again. Um, uncle James said that he was aware that this tape existed, and that he had heard of another one that showed Alyssa having sex with Mike and an unknown adult woman, but these tapes have never been recovered. Now, it was also stated that when Alyssa was younger, her doctor had, had told Barbara, this is before she passed away, that she had had scar tissue indicating that she had been sexually abused. Now, we believe it just as Barbara started to see the real Mike turning, uh, tragedy struck, and then, the, you know, the cancer diagnosed. But it's also stated that Barbara had passed away one day before her insurance policy 
was set to relapse or lapse, whatever. Um, as Alyssa got older, Mike had surveillance cameras set up to spy on Alyssa. Um, most notably, there was one hidden in the vent in the living room and even in Alyssa's bedroom. There was a uh, passive recording system on the home phone that recorded all incoming and outgoing calls. Alyssa had to write letters to her friends to communicate without every word being documented for Mike's playback. Um, he had also traveled to her work. Um, and, and he, over the years, he always, always kept going back to Sarah had a, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Alyssa had a disability. Alyssa had a disability. Alyssa was naive. Alyssa didn't understand things. Uh, he had put her on an individualized education plan for learning disability that she was never diagnosed with or having even formally tested for. He insisted she was stupid and had to ride the short bus. He was even said dumber than a rock. Um, mild form of retardation. He would call her that word frequently. He consistently told her that she needed special accommodations because she was slow. Um, there's footage of Mike filming Alyssa through the window while she was working, as well as footage of her making out with her boyfriend on the couch. Um, there were several incidents in, in the desert stating um, that Mike had tried to assault her. Um, one time he would made her walk home. Um, he had made claims that Alyssa had a very high sex drive and that she enjoyed engaging in, in such activities. Um, Ultimately, he was laying the groundwork for any kind of way out on his end um, because over the years, if he'd been sexually abusing her, he's able to control that narrative to a certain degree by having control over her. He can see who she's talking to. He can see who she's friends with, and he can cut it off. By the CPS call, he can he thinks he's getting around it and cutting it off. He thinks he's getting getting in front of the situation. So, as this builds, and as he realizes that Sarah, uh, sorry Sarah, <laughs> Alyssa is not she's very strong, strong-willed, strong-minded, is probably going to give him up. He's, she's going to tell somebody, and she had made comments to different friends and things like that, that, uh, you know, he, he had done certain things to her. And she was tired of it. She was tired of it, and he knew it. He knew it was building up to this. He did not, and it's just my opinion, he did not know how to get in front of it. For years, he had been making excuses. Oh, well, this is this, or this is this. She's got this problem. She's stupid. She's handicapped. She's mild, mildly retarded. And all of her friends say that she wasn't. Her friends say that she was just a normal teenager, the normal teenager things. But in Mr. Turney's mind, he is wondering what in the hell he's going to do. Because... In less than a year, she's 18. His, his control of the narrative is over. His control of the situation is over. Over. And so we build to this afternoon. We'll be right back. 
So he's covered his tracks, you know? So now if he has a list in his truck, the truck that he has two of, the exact same truck, so if anyone says, I've seen you do this or that, and you were in this truck, he can say, here's the truck, check it for blood, check it for whatever. He's smart enough to know that a paper trail would or could at least show he owned two of the same truck, and that's fine because by the time law enforcement starts looking, way too much time would have passed. So now it's into phase two of this plan, cover up an alibi. He picks up his younger daughter and immediately, immediately says to her, hey, call your sister. Hey, call your sister. I can't get her. I can't get her. Like something's wrong. Insinuating it immediately. I've tried to call over and over. Tried. I've been calling her phone all afternoon. And oh, by the way, she got it. We got into an argument and that turned into a little fight. And yeah, I told her uh, she may not be uh, able to do late in summer. And when we got, when we get home, please go in her and check her room. And he knew she would find what she would find. He knew she would find the note, she would find this, she would find her phone, she would find all that stuff. And I'll maybe even blame herself a little bit. Maybe that's what he's wanting to happen. You know, they go in, they find Alyssa's phone, they find the note. Now, to me, the phone being left is strange because almost always a person would take the phone, especially in 2001, and you're running away, going on this trip to California, and you would rather leave the phone? Yeah bullshit and what the fuck have you been doing all day today so he drops her off at one and doesn't pick his uh, other daughter up till five so instead of calling 911 he calls the number to the police station like anyone else would probably do to call 911 or maybe not we don't know how we'd act so he calls the station and let them know hey I got a daughter that ran away she left a note yeah she's going to her family in California don't worry she'll be back alright thanks done at this point He's home free. He's, the, he's alienated the family. There will not be an investigation on a runaway. Well, it wouldn't even, it would show up. And it only would matter if Alyssa's attorney came in contact with law enforcement. And he knows that's not going to happen. And they, they run her name. So now all he has to do is put some time in between today and the future. And that's it. And it looks like he's doing all he can so the family doesn't question what had happened. So he makes comments like, oh, I've been searching. Or he makes trips periodically. God knows where he goes. But he pretend like I guess he pretends like he goes to California. But all in all, what brought this on was that he knew he could not keep the lid on it much longer. He knew that Alyssa doesn't buy into anything that he says. Now, Michael Turney may be a bit off on some of his conspiracy theories, but he is not stupid or unprepared. I would like to know when in his mind he knew what he was going to do or when he knew he was going to have to do what he had to do to Alyssa. In my opinion, when people have to talk about how good of a parent they are or keep reminding you of good things or remind you of how good they are, they're doing it only because they know the opposite of the, of the truth. And they are afraid of what might really come out. He controlled every aspect of Alyssa's life. And the only reason why is, uh, first, he didn't want any surprises. So he would listen to phone calls and record her at, at home and work. So he had to keep her close. As long as he was close and could control the narrative, he could 
direct and manage the situation. Same thing with his call to CPS. He's playing offense from a position of power and control. The closer he is to Alyssa, he feels confident he can make sure his ugly secret stays a secret. So, when did he realize that the only way to continue to control Alyssa is to seal her fate as Forever 17, his minor daughter that he's had control over? She never turned 18. Because Michael Turney can't control an 18-year-old adult Alyssa Turney. Because he knew that she was tough and strong and was about to expose him for what he is and was. So he puts his plan into motion. Last day of school, why? Well, like I said, this is his way of having over three months before he would have to explain her absence from school. That's just one less person putting their nose in. Why pick her up early? Well, it catches Alyssa off guard and puts him in control with the element of surprise. So any, any after-school plans are gone. Gives him time to do what he needs to do without having to explain to anyone that in his house that he lives with, where he's been or what he's been doing. Because he's got a younger daughter he's got to tend to. And he better be back and ready to pick her up. Otherwise, there's a big red flag. And he needs some time. It takes time to do what he needs done. So he's got four hours. Maybe longer. Because he says he picks her up at 11. They had the argument at 1. So that gives him seven hours. So... You know, I do think that Alyssa would have taken the phone if, if it was a true runaway, and I do think she would have been seen. She would have turned up somewhere. She would have been seen by now. And, you know, Michael Turney knows this too, but the only way to have it show on, on, the, on tower records and pings from everyone's phones when Michael Turney is calling Alyssa over and over is that she, or at least her phone, is home. Because there's no way for him to take the phone and hide the phone without it being on his person. And that's just going to put her too close to him. And he's not, it's not to, to leave it, it's the only way he can do is leave it at home. So now the biggest part to get behind him is informing law enforcement of Melissa's runaway. Now at this point his law enforcement background kicks in. He was a, he was law enforcement in Phoenix and he knows that if he reports her as missing and there is a legitimate note, then they would treat her as a runaway. So now all he has to do is show the note, and that's why the note is, is crucial because it establishes that Alyssa Turney establishes her as a runaway and not a missing person. There is a big difference. He needs that note to establish runaway status so and of course the letter has a lot of inconsistencies with with her leaving that day uh, that, that particular day and the one we reference a lot is that she says oh dad I stole $300 but leaves 1800 behind in her bank account now, he's willing to let it ride on that note because he needs that note without the note she is a missing underage child and maybe that would have caused some sort of scrutiny on Michael Turney's life and, at the least, a closer look. So,
what we end up having is Michael Turney still holding all the cards. You know, no one receives a phone call from her, well, supposedly one person. But we're able to believe that according to Michael Turney, Alyssa had trouble focusing on work, had a learning disability, could not think for herself, could be talked into anything. He had to put up cameras to make sure she was okay. He watched and recorded her at work and home. To hear Michael Turney tell it, if it wasn't for him picking up where she slacked and couldn't maintain, function, or survive, she would be lost without him. To hear it from him, she couldn't make it without him. But the flip side is, she is allegedly now a mastermind, an escape artist, a runaway plan in which a, a very short period of time with very little to no resources and with no help from her family, with no phone, $300, she has managed to become hidden for all this time. You can't have it both ways. That sounds like the work of a genius to me. By the way, she made it to Cali and was near the ant. She... And by this afternoon, I mean the afternoon of when last day of junior year it's a short day anyway it's not a full day it is May the 17th 2001 now some details of this disappearance is Alyssa was last seen at her home in the vicinity of Bell Road and 34th Street in Phoenix, Arizona on May 17, 2001. It was the last day of her junior year at Paradise Valley High School. Her stepfather, Michael Roy Turney, says he took Alyssa out of school early and they went out to lunch and then came home. He stated they got into an argument during the meal because Alyssa wanted more privileges and when they returned home, she was upset and went into her room angrily. Now, he's stating that she got upset over maybe a hypothetical type situation over the course of the summer. Her curfew's not going to be longer. The course of the summer, she's not going to be able to do certain things. And my thinking along the, as far as like a, a teenage child, they don't think in like, well, uh, it would be more along the lines of being upset if something right then, like I, maybe if she had said, oh, I want to go to this tonight, uh, I want to go to this party tonight, and he says no. Then she gets upset and runs away. Guess where she's going to run to? She's going to run to that party that she wants to run to. But these, she's getting upset over hypothetical type situations, over her curfew throughout the summer. It's not a specific thing unless they were arguing about a specific party that night. But he doesn't say that. But Michael does state that he left her alone at 1 p.m. Went to run errands and pick up her sister. He tried to call Alyssa while he was gone, but she didn't answer the phone. When he returned to the house at 5 p.m., Alyssa was gone, leaving behind a note saying she was running away to California. The note says, Dad and Sarah, 
When you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. Dad, I took $300 from you. Now, a couple of things that stand out in that is they have, okay, first off, they determined that is her writing, but by through the course of looking at the letter, it's determined that she possibly had written that at a different time. Because she had, she had worked, she had been working, and she had left $1,800 untouched in her bank account. She left her makeup, hairbrush, house keys, and cellular phone behind as well. She apparently did take a black backpack with her. Now, in my opinion, when Michael goes to pick up his other daughter, Sarah, and he tells her, hey, I can't get over to your sister, start calling. He is starting to create himself an alibi. He is starting to create himself, well, you know, getting the younger sibling involved. Uh, he has been building up to this point. He's been planning this. And so my theory, in my opinion, is last day of school, how can he minimize her contact? So he doesn't have to tell the teachers as, as why she's missing. There's going to be no school nosing around because it's the beginning of summer. So he's got three months, roughly, to put a distance between that before she would have to go back to school. Um, and now for years, by covering up his abuse to her, he has been placing blocks of doubt with people for years, manipulating the situation for years and years and years by saying she's a wild card, she's stupid, she's this, she's that. Look at me. I'm the great father. I'm this. I'm that. And all of it's been building up to this. To this. Authorities initially treated Alyssa as a runaway and believed she could either be in California or still in the Phoenix area. Why did she treat? was she treated as a runaway? Because... Michael Turney stated that this is a runaway. She has run away to California. I know where she's at. So we're speaking to a man that for years and years and years knows every inch of every move that's made in his home, on his phone. And now all of a sudden he's lost control. If Alyssa was to, was to have run away... She would have took her phone. I don't care if she thought she could be tracked on it or not. It was a lifeline. It was a way to her reach people to wherever she was decided to run away to. She would have took her $1,800. Even if this note says she took $300 from him, she would have took $300 from him and $1,800 from herself. Because she would want to have as much money and, and means that she could. She would want to maybe plan a little bit better. Maybe say, oh, I need this money, I need this phone, I need this. She's not going to grab a couple of things, not take her phone, not take all of her money, throw a few things in a black backpack, and then never be seen again. It would be a different story if she threw a few things in a black backpack and she was found two blocks over at a friend's home. But that's not the case. This has been a manipulated situation from the beginning, and it has been manipulated by Michael Turney. Now, 
Authorities didn't give two shits about where she had gone or what she had done because the father, the father that's supposed to love and protect this child, has stated to them that this is a runaway situation. And so for years and years and years, Mike Turney has stated that he has went to California, that he has looked and searched and looked and searched and looked. When the, real, the reality is this, he states that one week after she had went missing, that she, this to me makes him the most guilty of all. One week after she had went missing, she made a phone call, he says, from a payphone in California, but quickly hung up after he'd spoke a few words to her. This was the last trace of her. But guess what? The phone recording wasn't working that night. We're talking about a man that recorded every conversation that came in and went out of his home that was one of the most paranoid men on God's earth. He just so happened didn't record this. My daughter is gone. Why in the hell would you not have your recording system on then? Oh, maybe she calls. We can record it. But it wasn't on. It wasn't on. Now, he keeps this, this ruse up with, within the family. But see, he's laid the groundwork beautifully. See, he slowly had distanced himself and, and Alyssa from her, her mother's side of the family. He slowly but surely alienated her. Wouldn't allow her to have friends. Wouldn't allow her to, because he, that's, that's, what, uh, that's the only way he can control the narrative. And, and keep his tracks covered. And keep his crimes a secret. Keep his secrets a secret. Now... Melissa, they said Alyssa was very close to her siblings, her friends, and her steady boyfriend, but she never mentioned any runaway plans to them, and none of them heard from her after she went missing. It's uncharacteristic of a runaway to leave behind all of her belongings and money, as Alyssa apparently did, and to never contact friends or family again. Now, law enforcement had no desire to look into this, because she was considered a runaway. And a runaway and a missing person are two different things. And Michael Turney is the reason for her runaway status. It wasn't until 2006 that a Florida man confessed to her murder. But his story turned out to be false. Now Michael Turney, a former law enforcement officer himself, says he made over 30 trips to California to look for her. Alyssa's friends describe her as normal. Spirited teenager with a little rebellious streak. She had experimented with a little bit of marijuana and sometimes skipped class. But she was a good student. Her friend stated Michael was a strict parent who reg regularly searched Alyssa's belongings, monitored her phone conversations, and sat outside a restaurant where she worked. That's a man concerned with... Well, look, in a criminal sense... Let's take embezzling. You're going to stay if you're embezzling money from a corporation, and you're the accountant. You're going to stay on top of those accounts you're embezzling from because you're wanting no one else to get a look inside, because someone else might see the wrongdoing. So you want your eyes only on it. So his eyes only. So why he'd keep such a tight leash on Alyssa because he knew she was a firecracker. He knew that she wasn't going to keep quiet, and he knew his time was running out. Now. Police had found, and this is after 2006, keep in mind that's five years. 
Police have found strange contracts, which Michael wrote and made Alyssa sign. A forensic psychiatrist uh, who viewed one of the documents said it showed Michael had an absolute need for control and dominance of Alyssa. Michael had also surveillance cameras set up inside the family home and, and recorded all telephone communications except the one phone call she made from California, supposedly. Now, after she disappeared, uh, Alyssa disappeared, Michael refused to take a polygraph or sit down with police for an interview. Although he did communicate with them through fax, email, and phone, he never gave police the surveillance tape for the day Alyssa went missing, but said he had reviewed eight hours of footage and seen nothing of interest. He also said the phone recording system wasn't operating on the day Alyssa called him after her disappearance. That is bullshit. Several people had also claimed Alyssa told them Michael had sexually abused her or tried to abuse her. She had spoken to friends and family members about him gagging her and handcuffing her. Now, Michael denies these allegations and maintains he is a good parent who never harmed his stepdaughter. Now, the year before her disappearance, Michael himself, like I said, called CPS to tell them that if Alyssa ever filed child molestation complaint against him, she was lying. He said the cameras and recording devices were for security reasons, not so he could observe his children's activities. Now, finally, after 2006, this guy had to confess to doing it. They realized that this was a false confession. The police are opening their eyes to things. So in 2008, police executed a search warrant on the home where Alyssa had lived and the home across the street where her family now lives. This is at the time, 2008. They were looking for evidence in Alyssa's case. Now, investigators found many videotapes of Alyssa at her home during the search dating back to the 1980s, but not one from the day she disappeared. Now, during this search, they did find 19 high-caliber assault rifles, two handmade silencers, a van filled with gasoline cans and 26 homemade explosive devices filled with gunpowder and roofing nails. It was the largest stockpile of explosives discovered in Phoenix Police Department history. So now this is where it takes a turn. Now Phoenix Police Department is more concerned about the largest stockpile of explosives discovered in Phoenix Police Department history. Um, more than 100 neighbors were temporarily evacuated. Uh, Mike was taken into custody. He was carrying two handguns, a recording device, seven magazines of ammunition, and a knife. Uh, the search uncovered the guns, explosive. They also found a 98-page document titled Diary of a Madman Martyr in his home. Now, at this point, the document, Michael accused the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers of being behind Alyssa's abduction and murder. So, he, you know, he worked as an electrician in the 1980s and complained about workplace conditions and after Alyssa's disappearance, he told police he thought the union had a grudge against him and had kidnapped her in order to punish him. In the diary of a madman martyr, Michael wrote that he had already killed two assassins who were responsible for his stepdaughter's death and that Alyssa was buried in Desert Center, California. He wrote that he planned to blow up the union hall in revenge and kill himself in the process. The police believe they may have stopped him just in time. They found the weapons and explosives on December 11th and the next meeting at the Union Hall was scheduled for the 15th. Of course, in an interview with the media after his arrest, Michael claimed the bombs weren't his and the police had planted them. Um, of course, he pled guilty in 2010. Um, I think he got 10 years. Yes, he was sentenced to the maximum term of 10 years in federal prison. He is out. And, of course, the police had stated many times they were going to look into Alyssa's case or arrest him as soon as his time was up, and this, that is not 
not the case. So, what do we have here? Who was the last person to see Alyssa Turney? That would be Michael Turney. Who had the motive, according to all the reports of her stating things to her friends, for her to disappear? That would be Michael Turney. Who had control of the entire situation and narrative? That would be Michael Turney. Who was a paranoid individual that had his home bugged and the incoming outgoing calls on the telephone recorder? That is Michael Turney. It is strange for a man that has that much surveillance and that much paranoia that the one day that's missing is the day that his daughter goes missing and the one week later that she supposedly calls in on a phone conversation from a payphone that is also missing as well. We'll be right back. <laughs> 